the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As you know, there are certain principles that we learn in the church simply by becoming aware of our own experience of the church. And one of the things that we learn, perhaps very quickly, is that the church never springs anything on us. The church is not in the business of a mystery writer that has a surprise ending. But rather the church has a different assessment of human psychology, and that is that we are at our best when we know what's coming. So it is, as you know, for all of the great peace of the church, they are announced long in advance. And so we are in the midst of one of these prologues right now, the so-called five pre-Lenten Sundays. The first of these warning signals happened last Sunday with Zacchaeus Sunday. And the theme that we have been meditating on all week, the theme that has been dogging our steps as we go about our daily chores and our work, as we interact with other people, is that theme that we derive from Zacchaeus, the theme of all human desire. And it begins there with desire. Because the church understands something very well. Unless you and I desire Christ more than we desire a good life on earth, more than we desire an upgrade car, more than we desire a trophy wife or a powerful husband, more than we desire bright kids who are obedient and keep their toys picked up, more than we desire anything at all, we must desire God. And if we do not desire Him, or if we desire Him and desire many other things, or we desire Him, but we also desire this, we will fail. The phenomenon of human desire, which occurs already in paradise with Adam and Eve, the phenomenon of human desire is the fuel that drives our salvation. The desire can even be slightly out of focus. Look at Zacchaeus. He didn't desire the salvation that he ends up getting. His desire even was rather of the character of curiosity even be slightly out of focus. Look at Zacchaeus. He's heard something. For heaven's sakes, Palestine is a small country. We've all heard something about this young, bright, shining rabbi from Galilee. Jesus of Nazareth. Zacchaeus is hardly the only one who desires to see him, who he is. But Zacchaeus' desire connects to God. This uh, very powerful, but very tiny little man, this man of great wealth, this man who holds power over other people, especially the weak, the 
outcasts of society, the dispossessed, this little man, so much is curious that he makes himself ridiculous and clambers up a sycamore tree to get a good view. But you know, God can work with that. And Christ looks up and sees Zacchaeus seeing him. And you know what he says. Zacchaeus, come down. This day salvation is come unto thee and all thy house. This is so much more than Zacchaeus is asking for. The Zacchaeus, in a moment of absolute awareness, absolute presence to the moment, Zacchaeus responds appropriately. And do you know, more appropriately than Adam and Eve in paradise. He knows where the obstacles are that he himself has built between himself and God. He is a tax gatherer, and in the Roman Empire, the other word for that is extortioner. There are no honest tax gatherers. They are licensed by the emperor to go into every household and to take as much as they and the goons they employ to go with them can grab, especially from poor people who cannot resist, who cannot protest. Unprotected women are their special prey. Those who cannot in any way resist are robbed. And so it is not merely a tax gatherer, but a robber an extortioner, a gangster, a racketeer. And so the crowd is murmuring when they hear the words of Christ spoken to Zacchaeus. But God can work with Zacchaeus. The crowd can. The good ones can. But God can. And he can bestow salvation for even Zacchaeus, who is the son of Abraham. So we are thinking about our desires all this past week, what we want. And we know that this takes us right into the field of Christ, where he gets us into his sights. Because isn't it the fact that in the New Testament, Christ is always, in other words, asking all of us what it is we truly desire, what we most want, what is it that we yearn for? What is it for which we ache? And then, when we have honestly and without excuses owned up to what is the true object of our deepest yearning, Christ steps right in between of us and that and says, good, now choose. And he is always pulling that on us. And he will not let us off that hook because he loves us and desires our salvation. And there is no way that we can break clear of the gravitational force of a fallen world with its fallen energies until we have faced that and faced it honestly. And now the church takes us a second step towards the great past. 
the second of these five steps on this journey to the great Lent. It is the Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee is a part of that class of men who have been set apart from the generality of Israel and who have made it the business of their day, of their week, of their life to study and reflect upon the law of Moses, the law of God. They are the ones whose full-time job is to study the Old Testament, the scripture of the Hebrews. And so they are professionally and by definition religious men, devout and pious. But how many times do these devout, pious, religious men fall under the utter condemnation of Jesus Christ? Some of the harshest words, some of the worst language that we hear in the New Testament comes showering down like hail upon the heads of these Pharisees. Because they have so many times been unable to resist the cynicism and the hypocrisy that goes with an external observance of religious forms. And you and I can take good and clear warning from them. This is the story then of a Pharisee who is a religious man and a publican who is, like Zacchaeus, just an extortioner, taking advantage of his license to steal legally from anyone from whom he can get away with. An evil, wicked man, and a devout man, a leader in the synagogue. And Christ sets the scene up in just a few words. Two men went up to the temple to pray to God. Two men, doing as far as you and I could see, a good thing both going up to the temple to pray to the Lord. You and I could wish that we prayed more to God. You and I can stand with our head bowed before these two men scurrying up the mount of the temple to pray to God. But Christ looks beyond the clothing that these men wear the one clothed in a sinner's garb, the other a religious leader. And you know the end of the story, that the publican goes back to his own home, the sinner, the extortioner, the gangster, goes back to his home justified, rendered just by God. But the Pharisee, the religious man, goes back to his home, condemned. And now we come to the point of the day, its gospel, and this coming week. The character of our prayers must be linked to humility, for that prayer mocks us. That prayer boomerangs back on us to condemn us. 
Kippah prayer is simply another exercise in what Christ calls self-exaltation, what we call pride, that that prayer will blow up in our faces. How careful you and I must be, therefore, when we go out to pray to God. How carefully the words must be formed in our deep heart. And that deep heart, that conscious heart, that what the Greeks call the noose, that thinking, feeling heart must be filled with humility. We get the word in English from the Latin humus. It means dirt. Humus. We use the word if we're gardening. But it isn't just any kind of dirt because there's all kinds of dirt. Humus is the specific kind of dirt that will support life. You can put a seed in sand and it will die. You can put a seed in dirt that isn't right and it will die. But if you put your seed, your plant, your tree, your bush, your flower in humus, it will live. But how does dirt become humus? Humus is the earth that has been enriched by, of all things, garbage. The off-scourings of our life, what you and I throw away, what we throw out, what we brush off our tables, and we tip all this garbage into the dirt, and in an odd and paradoxical way, that garbage enriches the earth, gives it the power to sustain life, it becomes humus. What an odd way for reality to work. And so the humble man is humus. There has been perhaps a lot of garbage thrown at him. But instead of punching back and spitting back and casting it off, he has accepted it. He has taken it in. He has borne the burden of his brother. He has stood by his neighbor during a moment of anger and irritation. And instead of reacting, he has turned the other cheek. He has allowed his spouse, his child, his parent, whoever, to have his bad moment, and he has moved on with him, helping him through his moment of crisis. And in accepting all of that, while the neighbors are saying, why does he put up with it? He has enriched his soul, and he has become humble. And so when he goes out to pray to the Lord, his prayer flows from a humble heart from a humbled mind. And that man will end his prayer justified. But the one who prays like the Pharisee, I thank thee, O Lord, oh, so far so good, Those are, that's a good beginning, that I am not like other men. And he has his list of all those whom he has judged. 
And do you get the point? From a legal, from a technical point of view, the Pharisee is right. Of course it's not good to be like extortioners and murderers and such like. Terrible sinners, of course. But if in your prayer you are priding yourself on the fact that you think you are not like them, you will become worse than them because you have judged. And judgment belongs to God himself. If you know about extortioners and murderers and worse sinners, shouldn't you just pray for them and get on with it? But this man, in his prayer, acts as judge and jury. He assumes the role of the Lord God himself. And he is saying, I thank thee that I am not even like this publican. And of course the publican is there with a sobbing heart saying, his eyes cast down to the ground, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is another clue to good prayer. The publican knows who he is. He has managed to work all that out on the way to the temple. He's figured it out that he's a sinner. And so he says to himself, if I pray to the Lord, there's only one way I can do it honestly. I can't wear any disguises or masks because God will see right through them. So I'd better take all the masks and all the disguises off. I'd better stop posturing and just pray as I really am. I guess I'd better pray as a sinner. And thinking of these things, his eyes run like rivers with the tears of sorrow for what a mess he has made of his life. And you know, just like Zacchaeus, God can work with that. And no matter how bad a mess we've made of our day or of our lives, if we pray like that with the fervor of honesty, if we speak honestly to God, speak honest words to Him, we have given Him exactly what God needs to form a miracle, to change water into wine, to change an extortioner into a man justified by His honest tears, by His repentance. This week then, the second week we move from thinking about our desires to thinking about how pride and humility affect and infect our souls. And how it is that we must sort our way through these things. Because for a truth, our justification and salvation hang in the balance. Amen and Amen.